Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Right on. Good morning. Um, thank you so much, Miles. I love you, Miles. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, so to uh, Bishop Brandon Briscoe, thank you so much for the opportunity. First Lady Eva Briscoe, I appreciate it so much. Okay, some of y'all don't know what's happening right now. So um, growing up in the black church, one of the things that you, you, you discover is that everybody has a title. Okay, so we don't just introduce you as just, you know, person, right, your name. No, it's like evangelists. Uh, you got apostles. That's not even biblical, right? If you just study your Bible, it's not biblical. But you got evangelist, apostle, prophet, deacon, bishop, reverend. Um, if you're a lady, could be prophetess, deaconess, okay? And then if all else fails, we're going to call you psalmist. Psalmist. Now, you haven't written a psalm, but that's okay. We're going to find a way to dignify you with some kind of title. So, that's where that comes from. I'm not saying it's humble. I just, that's, that's where I grew up, okay? So that's just, that's all that is. So let's pray and uh, one more time and ask God to, to meet with us um, and to um, prepare our hearts to receive his word. Lord Jesus, thank you for another beautiful day. Um, I pray we never take for granted life. You woke us up this morning, Father, um, in our right mind. And there are people that don't have that, Lord. And we're able to get out of bed and, and, and come to church, Lord. It's a great blessing and a privilege, and, and we take that for granted. And so just pray your word, uh, Lord, to, to transform our hearts, uh, transform our minds, renew us, Lord. Make us more like you. In, in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, make sure you do have a handout. It's quite a few notes. So if you don't have a handout, or I know some of y'all, there will be handouts, and you are just like hardcore going to take your own notes anyway. Um, this is not the day to do that. You want, <laughs> you want to make sure you use the, the notes, the, the tools that we're giving you. So the, the subject this morning is fatherlessness. And you could argue that almost all of society's problems are a product or a result of fatherlessness. And so what I want to do, I just want to read some statistics to you so that we're all on the same page concerning the impact of fatherlessness concerning poverty. Children in father-absent homes are almost four times more likely to be poor. In 2011, 12% of children in married couple families were living in poverty compared to 44% of children in mother-only families. So children living in female-headed families with no spouse present had a poverty rate, poverty rate of 47.6%. That's over four times the rate of married couple families. Where drug and alcohol abuse are concerned, children from fatherless homes are 10 times more likely to abuse chemical substances. 10 times more likely. 71% of adolescent substance abusers come from fatherless homes. 71%. Regarding physical and emotional health, fatherless children are two times more likely to commit suicide. 80% of adolescents, 80% of adolescents in psychiatric hospitals come from fatherless homes. Regarding sexual promiscuity, 70% of teen pregnancies happen in fatherless homes. 
Children are nine times more likely to be raped or sexually abused in a home without a biological father. Where crime is concerned, 70% of adolescents in juvenile facilities come from fatherless homes. And children from fatherless homes are 20 times more likely to be incarcerated. And then listen to this, and when I read this, this breaks my heart. Listen to this. Boys and girls who live without a father are less likely to be able to delay gratification. They have poor impulse control over anger and sexual gratification. And they have a weaker sense of right and wrong. Just not having a father there. Educational achievement. 71% of high school dropouts are fatherless. Fatherless children have more trouble academically, scoring poorly on tests of reading, mathematics, and thinking skills. Children from father-absent homes are more likely to be truant from school, more likely to be excluded from school, more likely to leave school at the age of 16, and less likely to attain academic and professional qualifications in adulthood. Okay? So I think we get the picture. Fatherlessness is destroying our society. And uh, for some of you, I, I expect that that doesn't surprise you. But here's the question. If we know and agree that the absence of fathers is the source of a great deal of the problems in our society, here's the question. Why then do so many Christians reject the rule of their spiritual father in their life? Right? If, physical, if the absence of a physical father has this impact on our society, what happens when a Christian rejects the rule of their spiritual father? What is the impact? And this is knowing our father point number one. Spiritual poverty is inevitable for Christians that live like God is not their father. Spiritual poverty is inevitable for Christians that live like God is not their father. See, spiritual fatherlessness is worse than physical fatherlessness for a few reasons. It's worse The first reason is where spiritual fatherlessness is concerned, it only happens because the child rejects God. Where spiritual fatherlessness is concerned, it only happens because the child rejects God. See, where physical fatherlessness is concerned, children don't typically choose to be fatherless. It's usually something that happens to them. Dad walks out. Dad dies. Dad fails, right? But spiritually, we have a perfect father. Matthew 5, 48. Your father, which is in heaven, is perfect. And then point number two there, regarding spiritual fatherlessness, the consequences are eternal. If you are lost and you reject God as your father, you spend eternity in hell. If you are lost. If you are saved and you reject God as your father, and how many of you know you can be saved and still reject God's authority in your life as your father? Okay, so if you're saved and you reject God as your father, then you still suffer eternal consequences. You suffer loss of rewards. You suffer chastening in this life, maybe even loss of life. Maybe even loss of life. So what I want you to understand is that what's true in terms of the physical aspects of fatherlessness is also true spiritually. When we reject the presence and authority of our spiritual father, the spiritual outcome is the same as the physical, spiritual poverty. Over in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16, so then because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich 
and white white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. That was the problem with the Laodicean church. They were poor and they didn't know it. They didn't think they had need of God, their father. Spiritual substance abuse, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 11. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 7. But they also have erred through wine, through wine and through strong drink, are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They're out of the way through strong drink. drink. And here it is. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. There's an impact spiritually. Hosea 4.11, whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. Take away the heart. But then you also have, number three, spiritual and emotional distress. Lamentations 5.15, the joy of our heart is ceased. Our dance is turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe unto us that we have sinned. For this, our heart is faint. For these things, your, our eyes are dim. Romans 6, 21, what fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And then number four, you have spiritual whoredom. You may not like that word, but it is Biblical. My people ask, Hosea 4.12, my people ask counsel at their stocks, and their staff, their staff declareth unto them, for the spirit of whoredoms hath caused them to err, and they have gone a-whoring from under their God. And then you have spiritual crime. 1 John 3.15, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. So in God's eyes, just the emotion, you qualify. You're a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 1 John 2.10, he that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Verse 11, but he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whether he goeth because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. 1 John 4.20, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And then number six, spiritual ignorance. Job 21, 14. Therefore, they say unto God, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. We don't want to know about you, God. Jeremiah four twenty two. For my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sold as children and have None understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. And so what I want to establish is that spiritual fatherlessness is worse than physical fatherlessness. And it was a problem in Jeremiah's day. In the prophet Jeremiah's day, it was uh, it was a problem. The children of Israel were living like God was not their father. God said he was their father, Jeremiah 31, 9. He told them, I'm your father, but they were living like it. They didn't want him to be. That's an amazing concept. God, I don't want you as my father. And I think about that. Now, before you say that was then, this is now, you know, Paul encountered the same issue. We're studying through Galatians in, in our, in our uh, Bible studies, and you, you read Galatians chapter 4, and what does Paul have to do? He's got to remind them that they are sons. 
because they were living like slaves. They had forgotten that God is their father. And as you study the Old Testament, God gives you hints and clues as to what the real issue is. You don't have to turn to all these verses. Just listen because you should be able to pick up what God's issue is with them. Hosea 4.1. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land because there is no truth, no mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. Isaiah 1.3. The ox knoweth his owner. And the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Isaiah 5.13, therefore my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. And their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Jeremiah 5.4, therefore I said, surely these are poor, they are foolish, for they know not the way of the Lord. Hosea 6.6, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Are you seeing the pattern? Romans 1.28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. So you see this, this process of spiritual depravity described in Romans chapter 1, and it says they didn't want to retain God in their knowledge, so God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And then 1 Corinthians 15.34, awake to righteousness and sin not, For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. That's what Paul says. Now, as you keep reading Jeremiah, God tells them that he's going to take them through some things, some very difficult trials and circumstances. But afterwards, he gives them assurance that they're going to know him. That they're going to know him. Jeremiah 31, 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. No need to teach it. We already know it. We already know God. For they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So what I want to do in the time that we have left. I want to give you three key behaviors that demonstrate. Knowledge of our father in heaven. And our verse, our key verse, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter nine, we'll still be jumping around, but we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter nine. That's going to be the verse. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But here it is. But let him that glorieth glorieth in this glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. That I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. And so knowing our father, point number two, the extent to which God's character and attributes are manifest in your actions demonstrates the extent to which you know God. God says, if you knew me in this way, it would be manifest in your life. If you knew me in this way, it would be apparent in your life. And if these things aren't active in your life, it's because you don't know God in these ways. So the first thing we're going to look at is loving kindness, 
you would use, you could also say mercy. The same Hebrew word that they translate loving kindness, they also translate it as mercy. If you go over to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. That's verse one. And then you drop down to verse 43. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Those are the same words, same Hebrew words. So to understand the loving kindness of the Lord, you have to be willing to study and meditate because that's what this verse says in Psalm 107, 43. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. So what does that mean? You've got to be willing to study and meditate on the examples of the many sinners that have received mercy and undeserved grace. You've got to be willing to look at that. Go over to Psalm 136. I love this psalm. It's a psalm that describes God's mercy. And I want to consider some of the verses. Psalm 136 and verse 1. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. To him who alone doeth great wonders, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that made great lights, for his mercy endureth forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endureth forever. The moon and the stars to rule by night, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that smote Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endureth forever. Now, I find that verse interesting, verse 10. Because this is a passage that talks about mercy. And then you get to verse 10 and you see a description of God killing men, women, children. He killed all of the firstborn in Egypt. And God, the word of God, describes that as mercy. It's in a passage about mercy. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to it. And brought Israel from among them for his mercy endureth forever with a strong hand and with a stretched out arm for his mercy endureth forever to him which divided the Red Sea into parts for his mercy endureth forever and made Israel to pass through the midst of it for his mercy endureth forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his hosts in the Red Sea for his mercy endureth forever. There it is again. More death. Pharaoh and his armies die in the Red Sea. And the Bible says, for his mercy endures forever. Verse 16, to him which led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endureth forever. Verse 17, here we go again. To him which smote great kings, for his mercy endureth forever. And slew famous kings, for his mercy endureth forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endureth forever. And all king of Bashan, for his mercy endureth forever. And you can continue reading. And I like the beginning. I like the description of the creation account and what God did and how that is his mercy towards us. But then I find it odd that in a passage, in a chapter about mercy, you have so much death. See, there is a connection between death and mercy. Because in order for you to receive mercy, somebody had to die, right? Somebody had to die for you to get mercy. Christ had to die for you to get mercy. 
And so in showing mercy, the principle is the same. This is point number three. God's greatest act of mercy towards us was the sacrifice of his son. And likewise, we must be willing to die to self in order to show mercy to others. Because that is the biggest obstacle, self. That is the biggest obstacle. So mercy is something that is undeserved, right? And so I just think about this. You think about this in the workplace, people that mistreat you, that say things to you, right? And the tendency is to want to respond in your flesh, to want to justify yourself, to want to get back at them. And I'm, I'm preaching to the choir like, like me, okay? Because I, okay, so I don't get mad easy. It's actually really hard to make me mad. But once I get there, <laughs> probably takes just as long for me to bring it down. And so God dealt with me about this because there are people at work, boy, I tell you what. <laughs> like, I need help. Help me to walk in the spirit. You know, I didn't know I hold grudges, but I do. I think I do. I think that's true. And so I've had to work on that because, man, how many times has God forgiven me, right? And I don't deserve it. And so who am I to withhold mercy, right? Who am I to withhold that from somebody else, right? And so think about this. How much of the problems in society and and even in the church today, how many of those problems would be there if people were just merciful to each other? If people were just merciful. You don't deserve my forgiveness, but I'm going to give it to you because I didn't deserve Christ's forgiveness, but he gave that to me. And so, see, you experience fellowship with God when you can show love and forgiveness to those who are undeserving of it in your eyes. And in doing so, you demonstrate and practice the knowledge of your heavenly father. But I know how the prayer goes. God, I want to know you in the fellowship of your sufferings as long as I don't have to suffer. Right. And God, you can do that because you you can do the impossible. So if you could just impart to me that understanding without me suffering. Amen. I'm available. (laughs) Hallelujah. But that's not God's approach. Right. Uh, fellowship of his sufferings, that's authentic, right? You've got to be willing to go through. And, the, and see, and I'm afraid to pray. I am afraid to pray, God, help me to grow in mercy because I know what it means, right? It means I've got to be wrong first, right? I've got to, that, that's the only way that that happens, right? And so, but it's necessary. It's necessary. So that's the first thing. The first behavior is mercy. The second behavior Judgment. Judgment. Isaiah 59, 14, and judgment is turned away backward and justice, justice standeth afar off. And I just love the, the, uh, the English here. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. Isaiah 59, 15, next verse. Yea, truth faileth and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. So he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. So what was taking place in this society is that the people that were making the right choices and the people that were departing from evil, they were being the ones that were, they were the ones that were being attacked. 
they became the victims. Deuteronomy 117, ye shall not respect persons in judgment, but ye shall hear the small as well as the great. Ye shall not be afraid of the face of man. For the judgment is God's and the cause that is too hard for you, bring it to me and I will hear it. So the issue of judgment is primarily concerned with our capacity to judge situations and scenarios and to determine what is right and wrong between people. The ability to look at situations and determine what's right and wrong between people. But I want to consider this uh, in two perspectives. The first perspective we're going to look at is going to be the need to be people in our lives. We need to live in such a way that we're not taking advantage of people and no one has to judge between us and me and someone else. Does that make sense? It's how you're living. And we're going to look at that aspect and then we're going to talk about principles for judging situations. But firstly, we need to be people that live our lives in such a way that no one can say we are taking advantage of anyone else. So don't be the cause of a situation that has to be judged. Don't be the reason that Pastor Brandon has to get involved and make a decision because you got two believers quarreling because one has taken advantage of the other. And so I'm going to be as practical as I can. We need to be people that are considerate of how our actions or inactions are affecting other people financially. And I'm going to give you some examples. Okay, so college students, right? A lot of people renting and, and it's very common for college students to rent apartments together and, and, and rent houses together. Um, and, and, and that's great. I, I, you know, it's a, it's a good thing to do. But give you some examples. Let's just say I'm renting a room to you, right? Um, and you make the decision to move out. College students are transient. I get that, right? You got stuff going on. You need to move. So that's fine. So I make, okay, so you're going to move out. All right. So what month is this? This is August, right? So let's just say you say, Eric, I'm moving out end of August. Okay, that's fine. So you move out end of August, but you don't take your junk with you. And you leave it there for a couple weeks. Okay. Now you stop paying rent in August, right? But that room isn't rentable. You see where I'm going with this? I can't rent. Now, this is not me complaining that I've been wrong, right? I'm just giving you examples. I'm just giving you examples of how this works, and you think it's no big deal, but that room isn't rentable until it's clean and ready, until it's clean and ready. Or you just leave the room a disaster, and somebody's got to come in and clean up behind you. How long does that take? Well, however long that takes, that room isn't rentable, right? Or, or uh, you're renting with your friends, and you, you're not paying the rent on time, right? And we got to chase you to find out when you're going to pay your rent. Well, the landlord doesn't know that, and the landlord doesn't care. Typically, what happens is one person ends up paying the whole thing. And so that person's struggling financially until you decide to pay your part. Those are the situations that I'm talking about. Those are the things. And so it goes beyond just renting situations, but even to general, just keeping your financial commitments, right? If you agree to pay for something, pay for it on time. Commonly what I see, um, you know, we, we have a cause and everybody's like, oh, I'm going to donate $20, I'm going to donate $15, i am going to donate 10 And then the person, based on the commitments, goes and purchases the card. And then they got to be the collections department because you said you were going to give something and you didn't give it, right? Things like that, where we just need to be considerate of what we have committed 
so that no one has to come in and judge and say, you were wrong in this. This is poor stewardship. This is what you need to do. You know, I had some work done on my house. Um, I had a, a master bathroom put in my bedroom. Um, and Mark McKendry is awesome, by the way. I don't get it. I'm not getting like a commission check on this or anything. I'm just telling you he's awesome. But, you know, this is Mark McKendry's job, right? This is what he's doing for a living. And so that, 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 that's, there's two things about that. A, I expect to pay Mark a premium for what he's doing. Because if I had to get it from anywhere else, I'd have to pay that price, right? So I'm not expecting Mark I'm not entitled to Mark giving me some really cheap discount because Mark has to make a living. And by the way, I know I'm getting a better product because it's coming from somebody in the church that has a history of faithfulness, right? He's a good steward. He does good work. Why would I want, why would I expect him to work for pennies on the dollar, right? And sometimes I think we do that as Christians. We, ex- we sort of think that when we work with each other that, oh, because you're a Christian, you should charge me less, that's not right. I should expect to pay for great service because if I had to go anywhere else and do it and get the service, I'd have to pay full price for it, right? But then the other thing that I need to do is I need to pay on time, right? He shouldn't have to chase me for what he does the work. He comes out there and he does the work, and then I should have the money ready. These are practical things, but it, it happens. It comes up. Um, and I think y'all know this, but I said, you know what? We're going to cover it anyway. We're going to cover it anyway. So... One more thing on this subject. I'll say it this way. So Proverbs, I was amazed when I first came to the Lord. I was amazed to just find out how practical the Bible is and how if you just slow down and just read the Bible, it can keep you from making some stupid decisions, right? (laughs) Just don't do that, right? So Proverbs 17, 18, a man void of understanding striketh hands and become a surety in the presence of his friend. So in modern day, that's co-signing, right? Oh, this is my friend. I'm going to co-sign for him. Bible says that's a man void of understanding. Why do I need to co-sign for you? Yeah, you're my friend, but why do I need to? The reason I need to co-sign for you is because you're not qualified to get the loan. They know you can't repay. That's why they want a co-signer. That's why they want a cosigner. If they thought you were qualified, you wouldn't, get, you wouldn't need a cosigner. And so this is what Proverbs says. My son, if thou be surety for thy friend, this is Proverbs 6.1, if thou hast stricken thy hand with the stranger, thou art snared with the words of thy mouth, thou art taken with the words of thy mouth, do this now, my son, deliver thyself. When thou art come into the hand of thy friend, go, humble thyself, and make sure thy friend. Give not sleep to thine eyelids, nor slumber to thine eyelids. Deliver thyself as a roe from the hand of the hunter and as a bird from the hand of the fowler. And so the wisdom of Proverbs is, A, don't be a cosigner, but B, if you do it, keep your word, work hard, and get out of debt. Keep your word, work hard, and get out of debt. Okay, so the point is, where judgment is concerned, we need to make sure that we're not taking advantage of each other, right? And and whatever aspect that is, we need to make sure we're not taking advantage of each other. But then secondly, we need to judge rightly between life situations when it's time to do so. So this means being willing and able to rightly issue accountability. Over in Ecclesiastes 3.16, he says, And moreover, moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness that iniquity was there. 
So in the place that there should be judgment, there's wickedness. In the place that there should be righteousness, there's iniquity. Basically, if you want to, another word for this could be accountability. Accountability. And the key is kind of what we talked about, the verse that I read earlier, where accountability is concerned, the thing that hinders accountability is fear of man. That is the thing that hinders accountability. It's fear of man. Right? Deuteronomy 1.17, be not afraid of the face of man. Now, this is something that I see a lot in, in my um, at work. So I'm a, I'm a sales director. I manage managers. OK. And it's easy. It's easy to it's easy to show up and not hold people accountable. That part's easy. Right. I don't have to ever have a bad conversation with you. Right. I get to always be your friend. And I'm always saying positive things to you. Right. But if I want results and things have to get done, then I've got to be willing to confront bad behavior, which means that I'm not always liked means I'm not always liked because I have to talk to people and I have to say things. I have to say this is not okay. I have to say this is unacceptable. And so God is expecting us to be able to look at situations and hold people accountable. Now, I'm going to give you the caveat to this, right? What accountability should look like. Don't be a jerk, okay? So John chapter 4, that's your homework. Read John chapter 4 and read how Jesus brings about an awareness of sin in this woman's life. The Bible says Jesus came in grace and in truth, right? And so uh, somehow I think sometimes the grace for us is lacking uh, in how we bring it up, but we have to be willing to do it, okay, in our life. And, and so leaders have to be willing to hold people accountable. So I manage sales managers. I have some sales managers that have good months and bad months, right? So it's kind of like they're very inconsistent with their results. And then I have a couple sales managers that every month, they are killing it. Their teams are killing it. They're ranked in the top three sales managers on the list. The thing that I see that is most consistent about that is the managers that are most consistent with results are the most consistent with accountability. Imagine that. And then when I see a manager that's struggling and their sales aren't what they should be, the first thing that they say, oh, I need to start holding people accountable. I need to da-da-da. And then they go do those things. The numbers go up. But then it's like, okay, be consistent, Right? What you did to get those results, you have to continually do that consistently. And so in our life, judgment should prevail. At school, judgment should prevail. At home, judgment needs to prevail. But then also there should be mercy for the weak. So we should do all that's in our power to ensure that it's there. And that was God's issue is that when he looked at the children of Israel's life, there were people being taken advantage of and nobody was standing up for them. Nobody was standing up for them. Deuteronomy 27, 18. Cursed be he that maketh the blind to wander out of the way, and all the people shall say amen. Verse 19. Cursed be he that preferred the judgment of the stranger, the fatherless, and widow, and all the people shall say amen. Right? And so this is why I'm so thankful for this church. This is why our city union mission, our ministry there, is so important. Because God has a heart for the poor. He has a heart for the fatherless. Right. He has a heart for the incarcerated. We have a jail ministry. And so when you give, um, you have the assurance of knowing that part of your giving goes to support those ministries. But then also you have the ability to do those things, too. Right. So the strong art ought to bear the burdens of the weak. And the strong ought to stand up for the weak. So knowing our father, point number four, to exercise judgment 
we must first live lives that don't require judgment and be willing to hold each other accountable in love while showing God's love to those that are weak. So are you doing right by other people? Are your actions causing undue financial burden on others? It should never be true for a Christian. Are you loving people? First Thessalonians 5.14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Here it is. Comfort the feeble-minded. Comfort the feeble-minded. Support the weak. Be patient toward all men. So we don't just get to throw people away because they don't look like us, right? Because they don't act like us, because they don't, they don't move at the pace we're moving. They're all God's people. So the first thing was mercy. Second was judgment. Last thing, righteousness. Last thing is righteousness. So the first mention of righteousness is in Genesis 15, 6. It says, speaking of Abram, and he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. So how did Abraham obtain righteousness? I didn't hear anybody. How did Abraham retain, obtain righteousness? Believing. Believing, faith. There you go. So righteousness is obtained through belief. But if you talk to James, he'll also tell you it's obtained through belief and it's demonstrated in action. Over in James chapter two, verse 14, what doth it profit my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food and one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. James 2.18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. And so the issue is that the children of Israel, they talked a good game. But when it came down to it, they were blowing hot air. Matthew Henry said, There are many whose religion is lip labor only. It's lip labor only. And but when you examine your life, does it actually line up with what you are professing? God says over in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, wherefore the Lord said, for as much as this people draw near to me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. You know, when I read that, I tremble. That God says the wisdom of their wise men is going to perish. Because what's happening here, God says, I see the thing in your life that you're trusting in more than me, that you're believing in more than me. And I'm going to orchestrate some circumstances so that you come to a place to where you see those things are going to fail you. They will fail you. Over in Isaiah chapter 30. Go over to Isaiah chapter 30. You're going to walk through this, walk through these verses real quick. So the children of Israel, they loved Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world. Okay, so Egypt is a picture of the world. So Isaiah chapter 30 And verse one says, woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me. That cover with the covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Verse two, that walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked 
at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. So Egypt pictures the world and too many Christians are running to the things of the world for their strength. But watch the outcome. Verse three. Therefore, shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt, your confusion. So shame and confusion are the result. It doesn't work out. It never could. Those things that you turn to, the things of the world, it results in shame and confusion. Verse four, for his princes were at zone and his ambassadors came to Haines. OK, so what does that mean? So both of these are cities in Egypt. It was amazing that each, that, that uh, the children of Israel sent their leaders to Egypt to take counsel. It's amazing that Judah would do that. Verse five, they were all ashamed of, the, of a people that could not profit them nor be a help nor profit, but a shame and also a reproach. And then verse seven, for the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore, have I cried concerning this? Their strength is to sit still. You would be better off sitting still than going to the things of the world. You'd be better off sitting and waiting on the Lord. And so the connection here is that what you believe is manifested in your actions. So if there's a lack of righteousness, it has to do with what you believe. You've got some wrong beliefs. That needs to change. Over in Psalm 4, 5, it says, Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Well, what are the sacrifices of righteousness? I'm so glad you asked. Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. What's missing in a lot of our lives? Broken, contrite spirit towards sin. We're too celebratory. And we ought to be broken. Proverbs 21, 27, listen to this. The sacrifice of the wicked is abomination. How much more when he bringeth it with a wicked mind? You approach God with a wicked mind? A wicked mind? It's why we need the word of God renewing our minds. And why we need to be broken over sin. And why there should be humility instead of pride. So knowing our father, point number four. Belief is demonstrated in action and obedience. We don't obey because we don't believe. And without belief, there can be no righteousness. And see, I, 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 I don't have many examples here because I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to just bring those things to your remembrance, right? Those things in your life where it's like, I need to. I need to surrender. I need to examine my beliefs because I I say I believe it, but my actions aren't lining up. And I need to, some of you need to get before the Lord, right? And spend some time and have him open your eyes. What, what is the, where's the unbelief in my life? James 127 says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Uh, Bow your heads and close your eyes, please. Every head bowed, every eye closed.
So I'm talking to two groups of people, those that are, uh, know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and, and there may be some that don't. But to the first group, to those that are believers, is there anybody that would say, you know, um, there are some things in my life that don't line up with knowledge of my heavenly Father that I need you to pray for me about? Would you pray for me? There are things in my life that don't line up with knowledge of my heavenly Father. Please pray for me. I want to pray for you. I see your hands. I see your hands. And then, is there anyone in here that would say, I don't even know if God is my father. I don't know what it is to have a spiritual father. Would you pray for me? I want to see your hands. Okay, I see your hand. I don't even know if my God, if God is my father. If you pray, if that's you, you raise your hand and you don't know if God's your father, we're going to have people here at the front. And I want you to uh, I want to encourage you to come forward uh, when we worship. Don't leave here today unless you know that God is your father. And if you raised your hand, if you're a believer and you raised your hand. Man, make sure you don't leave here today until you've prayed with somebody. The good news is, is our father, our heavenly father is rich in mercy. He's rich in love. He's rich in, in forgiveness. And so all he ever asks is for us to repent. That's all he ever asks. Just turn around and begin following him. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going we're to worship. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. And Lord, uh, thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for the times that you rebuke me, Father, because there are areas of my life that don't line up with the fact that you are my heavenly Father. And Lord, you saw the hands that are raised, that were raised, and, and I pray for each of those, Lord. I pray for those that maybe didn't even have the strength to raise their hand, Lord. Um, Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. All you ever want is for us to repent and just to give you our hearts. And so I pray for those that need to make decisions, that they would talk to whoever they need to talk to, Lord, for um, the gentleman that raised his hand. Father, I pray that he not leave here today, except he um, come to know you and the pardon of his sins, Lord, that he'd talk to someone. And so we thank you for this time. Be glorified in the worship. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.